Welcome to Good and Decent, a podcast by Grotto Network. Stories of ordinary people living in extraordinary ways. Episode 4, Finding Empathy. Two thousand nineteen was a turbulent year at the southern border of the United States. Politically, the sitting White House administration had instituted a quote remain in Mexico policy, which led to asylum seekers being turned away in mass. Online, a haunting picture went viral. A young Salvadoran father and his twenty three month old daughter had drowned on the bank of the Rio Grande, trying to get into the States. Pope Francis even spoke out about it. With emotions running high, many wanted to take action. Grotto Network followed a group to the El Paso-Juarez border where they planned to take two actions. One, peacefully march and protest. And two, help families seek asylum by serving as witnesses and translators. What is it that I need to stir up within myself? And what is it that we need to stir up within each other? Because if we don't, we will continue to see families separated, children caged, our people shot, our people imprisoned, and our communities dismembered. This is why we've begun to come together, because we know the consequences of what happens when we don't. Border Patrol believe that what they're doing is right and we are doing what we believe is right and so there will be an encounter there will be tension but the beautiful thing about tension is tension is necessary for any change to occur this all began at holy name cathedral in chicago with cardinal blaze supich giving a special mass service Chicago's Coalition for Spiritual and Public Leadership, or CSPL, had organized a group of people to bust down to the border, and this was their send-off. After the service, they gathered for a couple of last prayers before hopping onto two Greyhound-style buses. Form a circle. Vamos a acercarnos un poco y a hacer un círculo. Sisters and brothers who suffer persecution and upon arrival at our nation's borders. May you return prepared and renewed to advocate for justice and accompany in love. I was embedded as a videographer on this bus trip. The majority of the seats on my bus were filled with college students on their fall break. Many of them were Latinx who were first or second generation Americans. All right, this time. So this bus is your bus. Travisio. Cindy. CJ. Here. Corrine. That voice you just heard taking roll call, you're going to hear it a lot in this piece. It belongs to my friend Michael Okinsik Cruz, but back then I just knew him as the executive director of the CSPL. You know, we come from a faith tradition in which Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were refugees and migrants. So... The right to migrate, the, the right to flee, the right to seek safety and opportunity is a fundamental right within the Catholic social teaching tradition. Despite how difficult it may be to um, sleep on a bus for hours and hours and hours, it's nothing compared to walking 1,500 miles to get to our borders and to be rejected. 
sleeping on a moving bus is difficult, but driving through the night was critical. Without stops, this trip takes over 22 hours, and pretty much everyone had to get back in just a couple of days for their jobs or classes. During the downtime, people were either listening to music, chatting, or trying to sleep. CSPL brought a little microphone and a speaker onto the bus so that they could plan their upcoming actions, people could tell stories, and they could discuss their legal rights at a border city. How are y'all doing? Doing pretty good. I'm tired. We're getting, getting sick. This is It's not illegal to accompany an asylum seeker to the point of the bridge in which they counter border patrol and ask for asylum. They can come on a bus, any vessel, and ask right for your identification if you're within 100 miles of a border or the sea. Okay. So unfortunately, when we're by El Paso, they can ask you about your citizenship status. Okay, so just be aware of that. Oh yeah, uh-huh. I can do that. And she was like, where are you guys from? And then I'm like, we're on a pilgrimage to El Paso. You know, we're going to go to the border and we're going to stand up for, you know, our people and everything. And then when it was time to pay our check, she said, you know, the owner is so touched by your by your mission. The uh, meal's on us. Wow. Aww. So they paid for our meal. They wanted to put a little bit of their, their little grain of rice into our efforts. After stopping for dinner the second night, that little mic and speaker were used as a karaoke machine. It struck me that this group of mostly strangers already felt comfortable singing in front of each other. The closer we got to El Paso, there was a palpable nervousness that crept over everyone on the bus. The chatting died way down. There's less music and more prayer. My parents, my parents crossed the border, and it's it's almost like I'm going to be making their journey. So for me, it's at a personal level. I think I'm just more. I'm not afraid because I look at their stories and I'm like. What I fear or what is going through my mind, it's nothing compared to the journeys that they've already had. What inspires me is the courage in each of you to do something like this. So I want to see you do this. I want to see you lead. I want to see you act boldly because I think this opportunity will change your lives. You're going to have to remain calm. You're going to have to remain uh, present. And you're going to have to remain controlled in a very tense environment. So this, this prayer that we're going to go through, the rosary is intentional. It's not this fluffy stuff. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Do you have any like, nerves about this? Are you just excited? <laughs> the only thing I'm reflecting on probably more than anything else is you never know what's going to happen. You you try to plan as much as you can, but oftentimes the unexpected is the the thing that does happen. There came a time when Michael had to separate the group into two factions. 
one would be part of the larger march and protests happening on the American side of the border. The other would be a much smaller group. They were to cross the border into Juarez and actually encounter and aid asylum seekers directly. They'd be crossing checkpoints, dealing with armed guards in a stressful situation, and visiting a makeshift immigrant camp fraught with chaos and confusion. So I want to ask, we're looking for one or two volunteers for those going into Juarez to be an accom- uh, uh, somebody to accompany an asylum seeker. One or two. <laughs> After Michael asked that, I whipped my camera around to see if anyone was going to volunteer. I think every college student had their hand up in earnest. I still get chills thinking about that moment. If these people's plans never go through, it means death. It means walking hundreds of miles back to where you came from. One of the young adults on our bus was there to help because she had experienced her own trauma as a child when her family immigrated to South Africa. When I was seven years old, my family decided to go over to South Africa. Um, At that time, we had executions happening and my dad was worried for the family. There was this big river we had to go through. We would be walking slowly, ever so slowly. And every time a helicopter would come above us, they would tell us stop so that we wouldn't get seen by the border patrols. And when we got on the other side, there was this big oak tree that was waiting for us. And they had crafted a big hole inside. And so we put all our bags and we tried to squeeze ourselves inside. And we waited for a very long time, just quiet, waiting. They told us to wait for a truck. A truck was supposed to come get us. After long rides, we were finally able to get into Pretoria. And they put us over the fence. And that's how I actually got into South Africa. And I couldn't say thank you to those people, but this is my way of saying thank you. By trying to bring that same hope back to somebody, knowing that even that little word changes and makes a whole big difference in somebody's life. Because I've seen it make a difference in my life. The scene just south of the El Paso Border Patrol checkpoint is jarring and desperate. It's an impromptu camp. Barefoot children roam between the rows of makeshift shelters. It's a sea of people, tarps, and trash cans. Genesis Vasquez was one of the students that volunteered to cross over into Juarez. And when we finally crossed, um, I like saw the tents and I saw a lot of people and I was just like overwhelmed because there was just like a big bunch of people and I didn't know like anything about like what was going on. And I started to cry. Like, I don't know. Like, like it was really tough seeing people like that. I couldn't breathe. Like I, I, I was having a really hard time trying to like be in the moment. Someone gave me a box to hand to like one of the families, like to hand them food. And I l- couldn't do it, like I froze, like I started crying. <laughs> and then I like finally like took a box, like I picked a random family. I asked the mom like, where are you from? And she ended up saying she was from the exact same state where my parents are from. She hugged me and we were just like crying together for such a long time and like, I had no idea what to say to her, and I felt like even if I did try to say something, like, would it even mean something? 
after Genesis' tearful embrace with the mother, she kneels down to eye level with the daughter. She asks the small girl what her name is and her age. She tussles her hair, jokes with her. She tries to make her laugh. The tears in her eyes seem to be defying gravity. It's not a lot, but it's enough and it's something to start off with. So that was very inspiring to me and just being able to know that we at least did something and something is better than nothing. The El Paso Pilgrimage is a grotto story. It was produced by Michael Burke and me, Josh Long. The volunteers from our bus helped 15 people cross legally and safely into the United States that day. Several months ago, when our team started pre-production on this episode about empathy and compassion, we noticed that several of our many docs on that subject were produced by the same freelancer, Michael Burke. Host of Good and Decent, Sarah Toms, and myself decided to give him a call. Okay, well, hello, Michael. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too, Sarah. Where are you Zooming to us from? I am Zooming to you from Plano, Texas, which is uh, a city just north of Dallas, Texas. That's awesome. Okay, and uh, tell us what you what you do and why we're, why we're chatting with you today. I don't know. Why are you chatting with me? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a filmmaker. I, I like to say I specialize in documentaries and branded content. But obviously, I need to pay the bills, so I do a lot of other work, too. But uh, documentary-wise, I love to tell stories that um, people might not be aware of uh, in in ways that are hopefully digestible, no matter your opinion or your perspective. I think there's a lot of issues that everyone should care about if presented in the right way. I don't know if I always do that because I'm obviously biased, too. But I, I hope that the work I do at least starts conversations or at least can maybe open your eyes up to just a, a different perspective that that really clicks in your head and says, oh, maybe that is something that I should be concerned about or care about or um, you know, not be so closed down or closed off to. Michael, we just listened to El Paso Pilgrimage. What is that first point of contact with a group like us, Grotto Network, when we have this project, we're laying it out to you, you're thinking about if you can or want to do this? Um, so for the El Paso project, it was, I guess I'm in a way I'm like your, your Southwest person. Cause I had already done a couple other films for you, but I, I believe Javi reached out and, you know, said, we have this, this interesting project. We're hoping to have another filmmaker involved and kind of, he ran by some of the de- details, but to be honest, um, there, I think there are a lot of unknowns, especially the portion that I filmed, uh, with the actual, um, you know, uh, demonstration and crossing of the border. Hmm. So I, so, so Javi brought this project to me and I just, it sounded very, very exciting and interesting. And, um, since moving here to Texas, I've become much more aware of immigration issues and the border crisis, the ongoing border crisis. It's just been much more uh, front facing to me, obviously, because I'm much closer to the border than I used to be in Chicago. Having the opportunity to help tell a story about that and 
quite frankly, to just to visit a place that I had never been before, both El Paso and uh, Ciudad Juarez was uh, just really intriguing. Part of what I, why I do what I do is because I like to have new experiences myself and, and be there with those people or in that place that is unfamiliar to me. What were your feelings as you were heading out to film? I was definitely nervous. <laughs> I mean, everyone thinks that like Dallas, Austin, Houston, El Paso are all just like a couple hours away, but Dallas to, to El Paso is actually like a nine to 10 hour drive. So mm. <laughs> it's, it's quite a journey for me by myself. There's almost always something you can't plan for. So there's always, there's always some nerves involved with um, heading out on a project like this. Is that sort of just the nature of documentaries in general? It feels like it both is in your control and totally not like anything could happen. Yeah, I think even just filmmaking in general, documentaries especially because you're most of the time you're just capturing whatever happens and you can only plan so much. But even even on the biggest budget commercial productions I've been on where we've been planning for months in advance, something always happens day of that you didn't plan for and you couldn't plan for. And you just have to have the right people and the right mindset to be ready to adapt and, and kind of go with the flow. Uh, but it's even more so with, with documentary filmmaking, I would say. What was that, that thing in El Paso that you remember not going according to plan? Uh, one's embarrassing and one's not embarrassing. So when I, when I, when the, the first one, the embarrassing one is that I had to use some different gear to uh, capture the actual demonstration crossing the border, a smaller camera, basically. And um, I couldn't find parking. I was going to be late and I was scrambling my bag to make sure I had all the right components and I forgot the, the cable to my microphone. So I couldn't use my, I couldn't use my secondary microphone. I just had to use like the camera microphone, which is not super high quality. And it's just like the moment I realized that and then I couldn't go back for it. I was just so like disappointed in myself. It's just little things like that, that I, you never, you never forget because it's like that moment of embarrassment or shame in your brain and it never goes <laughs> away, even if you're proud of the end result. Well, I don't think think you told Javi or I that story. <laughs> no, I didn't. No, no. Because if it, if it was like a really big problem and I knew you guys were going to get the files and the footage and be like, oh man, what is going on? This is really bad. If I knew that was going to happen, then I would tell you. But you know, when I can get away with it, sometimes I don't mention it. No, it's all good. <laughs> Very relatable. But the second thing, kind of a, a bigger uh, thing was with this story in particular, uh, like I said, I didn't really know what was going to happen across the border. I don't think anyone really did necessarily. You know, there there were people on the ground who had been help planning this, but you just, there's so many variables and especially just the way that border patrol was going to react to what we were doing. You just don't know. And even further, they kind of told the group like, okay, you know, there's only a small group of people that are supposed to to join us. We don't want to draw too much attention. We want it to be safe for the family. And um, it worked out. I was able to, to follow that moment with the family and, and the group escorting them. And, you know, I did so trying to stay out of it. I didn't want to interfere. I didn't want to, to bring any negativity in terms of whatever reaction or whatever outcome we had. Um, but I just kind of hovered around and, and stayed there with them. And I, I thought it was a really, a really cool moment to both be a part of and, and, and capture for, for the film as well. Unfortunately for me, I had like a prior engagement. I had a wedding I had to be to on this Saturday. So Sarah, I drove from South Bend to Chicago, got on a bus with them, rode it to El Paso and almost in a free fevered dream sort of handoff of the baton. Yeah. I don't know. The experience for me is very blurred, I would say, because lack of mm -hmm. sleep on a bus traveling that long. But sure. also because emotionally like there's so much to think about oh yeah absolutely there was there was a lot going on you know not only as me as like someone observing but everyone there really was internalizing their experience in their own way 
and just being around all that was, you know, it, it can be very heavy with you when you're with a, a whole group that is all going through this, this thing together and in their own, in their own personal ways. Um, but I think a blur is a good way to put it. And I just, you mentioned the handoff. I remember, I don't think we had met before, maybe to like emailed each other or something, but I remember you're like, okay, I got to get to the airport. And I just like, all right, do you want to ride? First of all, it's the polite thing to do in a situation <laughs> like that. But also I was just thinking, I talked to you for like five minutes. I need some more information. If I can drive you to the airport, at least I can get like 15 to 20 more minutes with you. <laughs> and I was like, that'll save us an Uber fee. So it's kind of a yeah. win-win for us. <laughs> Michael, maybe this is unfair to pin this question on you, but why was it getting so much attention at the border? Why did we have to tell the story at that moment? Why did they have to take this pilgrimage then? You know, A growing decrease in empathy for immigrants. At the very least, I think that we should be empathetic towards towards other people who are probably in most situations coming from a, a, a really, really poor quality of life or a really dangerous situation or, or something that, you know, the whole idea of crossing a country, if not a continent, to get to this other place, you must be pretty desperate in, in one way or another. And I think, I think that's at least what resonated with me all of a sudden. It was like, well, I really see something that I, I now identify as wrong. Um, maybe it was before, maybe I just was blind to it, but now I see something that I really feel passionate about that I at least want to be a part of and, and hopefully help tell a story about. And it sounds like to me what you experienced there was kind of a training and empathy. What did you learn about these people and their experience of it? A lot of the participants from the coalition that that uh, I spoke with or even that I interviewed came from backgrounds where immigration to our country was a generation away or less. They might have even been involved in that. And that really struck me just thinking that like, it's not just the people you see on the news that are coming from another country and they seem so distant. It's people all around us in our country that have had an immigration experience or their parents had an immigration experience. And um, one of the women that I, that I spoke with and interviewed they had, um, you know, a very harrowing experience where they were hiding and, and in a very unsafe situation throughout their process of coming really all the way across the, the, the world because they were coming, I believe, from from Africa. Um, and it's I, I guess it just brought, brought it so much closer to me where it's not just it's not just the people crossing the border from another country. It's the people that are already here that you already interact with that might be your friends or your peers or your colleagues that have had an, an immigration experience. And um, that really brought it home for me, I guess. As a videographer and as close as we get with our subjects, like physically, we still have a camera in front of us and between them. And it's easy to keep that there as a crutch sometimes. And I just remember like, yes, I was on a bus and sleeping in and around the same place as these folks but it wasn't until like the second day for me they did this exercise where they passed this mic around with like a really crappy amp that honestly <laughs> only about three-fourths of the bus could probably truly hear but that was a pretty bad amp on the bus yeah. <laughs> you were supposed to like kind of tell your testimony and why this trip was important to you and the mic is like slowly coming around to me. And like the whole time I just planned on doing the videographer thing and passing it to the next person. So what did you do when the mic came to you? Uh, dropped a beat first. 
<laughs> well, I honestly, I told the, the story about how my uncle used to be a Border Patrol agent. When I was just a little kid. Like for me, it was to, I don't know, kind of come to grips with what that really meant. And like, I love my uncle and he's a great guy, but he was like a young man in a very powerful position right and there's a line in the el paso pilgrimage video where michael okinsett cruz like simply lays out that jesus and his family were migrants mm-hmm. and for me that went to a very spiritual place the people who are my subjects all acknowledge that we need to view migrants uh, with empathy and acknowledge the dignity of the human being i, I think it does kind of connect us all in a, in a very spiritual way um, even if some of the people weren't explicitly religious, they all just acknowledge that deep connection that we all have as humans. And that really, as, as Americans, whether or not we want to acknowledge it, regardless of how American we we do or don't feel, very few of us can say we did not migrate here or our family or our ancestors did not migrate here. And um, I think keeping that perspective is really, really helpful in having a well-rounded view of the migrant and, and immigration experience. And there was some explicit spirituality in in the trip because uh, frequent collaborators with these groups was the, uh, the school sisters of Notre Dame had a small group in Douglas, Arizona. And it was actually a really, really interesting experience and a way where my own uh, expectations were really flipped. After going through this, I realized that a lot of people Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's just me. But I, th- I think a lot of people probably have a, uh, a skewed perspective on what it is to be a non-neurosister. And I showed up and I met some of the most lively, outspoken, passionate women that I've ever met. And just because they had a religious background doesn't mean that they don't have their own opinions and don't have a drive to make the world a better place. I mean, it, it inspires them and informs their, their drive to make the world a better place. And they were just some pretty funky ladies to, to be <laughs> play, quite honest. I mean, I showed up and like a few of them are just kicking it and drinking IPAs in the afternoon or something like that. And it's not what you expect, you know, 60, 70 year old women to be doing, but you know, it was just really, really eye opening. They were very, <laughs> very interesting women. Um, and I just want to, whether or not it makes it into the episode, I, I do just want to highlight uh, sister Judy Borg. She started her ministry in the seventies and, and taught uh, in both Louisiana and Texas. She eventually spent over a decade in Guatemala doing pastoral ministry there. She spent several years working in Rome, and now she's one of the sisters at this, this Douglas, Arizona site and is is very much involved in humanitarian work and, in, quite frankly, in political work and, and is very outspoken and very passionate about, about the crisis going on at the border. And it was really inspiring and eye-opening to me to have this preconceived notion about what it was to be a sister or a nun and was really just totally thrown out the window. It was, it was a really cool experience. And, and I feel bad for having that preconceived notion to begin with. That's very cool. That's a cool example of just expectations turned on their head. We say here at good and decent that the point of our podcast is to tell uh, stories of ordinary people living in extraordinary ways and I just wonder if that resonates with you and your work. Does it feel like there's something kind of extraordinary about the work you've, you've found your way into? I am 100% ordinary, but I hope that through the work that I do, I can tell the stories of extraordinary people and, and share their experience with others. I take no claim. I, I claim no responsibility or, or ownership over the achievements and feats that my subjects have, have 
have accomplished and gathered. So I am 100% ordinary. I'm just in awe, of, in awe of all these extraordinary people and hoping to tell their stories. As a fellow videographer, a jealous videographer, I got to say, watch these stories that he's produced and tell me if Michael's ordinary. You're a wonderful videographer. We love your work and we hope to keep working with you in the future. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. Thanks so much for, for being on the pod. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Hey, this is Javi, senior producer at Grotto Network. The following is a Grotto story titled Saving Migrant Lives in the Arizona Desert. It was produced by Michael Burke in Tucson, Arizona. And to this day, it's probably the story I'm most proud of at Grotto. You won't see it since this is a podcast, but the full dock sweeps across the Arizona desert in some pretty stunning aerial shots. The first time I saw this footage and then the devastation of the story that followed it, I was absolutely awestruck. My grandfather and uncles were migrant workers, but the experience of migrants captured by Mike in this story still leaves me absolutely haunted. desert, I am struck by its beauty. It's an absolutely stunning landscape. But that is ironic because it's also a killing field. A white pickup truck cuts across the bleak desert landscape. There are blue plastic barrels in the bed of the truck and a sign on the side that reads Humane Borders, Cronteras Compasivas, Water Service. Humane Borders is dedicated to the proposition that people who cross the border unlawfully shouldn't die. Stephen Satin-Saul and two colleagues get out of the truck They've arrived at a pole with a blue flag perched on top, blowing in the wind. The blue matches the plastic barrels and signage on the truck. Water is life. So of course it's important for people in the desert. We have 50 water stations in the Sonoran Desert, which we check periodically. We want to make sure that the migrants have excellent drinking water. And so we not only test it, we taste it, smell it, make sure that it's okay. I always analogize it to tasting food for the king. At the base of the flagpole is another blue plastic barrel. It has water in it, but not much. Migrants have been making use of it. They test a sample of the water with an instrument that looks like a thermometer. They smell the water taste it, then they run a hose from their truck to the barrel, fire up a generator, and begin refilling.
we hope that migrants will see the flags and even if they don't know what they are that draw their curiosity and yeah I think that's right 15 so 15 gallons um, might be seven people Stephen and his colleagues are looking at a topical map of the Arizona desert it's overlaid with hundreds of colored blots and horrifyingly it's titled 1999 to 2015 Recorded Migrant Deaths, Each Blot a Human Life Lost. We have death maps which show the place where people have been found and we try our best to put water stations in places where we know migrants are gonna be. We need to be doing something here to reaching out to these people that are coming, most of whom I think are coming from such horrendous circumstances that cause them to leave. In our backyard, we are living in an area where, where, where people are dying where they don't need to. I didn't want to just sit by and read about things. I wanted to actually do something. The team drives on to the next site. Stephen starts fiddling with a gold padlock that's attached to the barrel spigot. So we put these locks on about two years ago because vigilantes were pouring gasoline and uh, turpentine into the barrels. This one had gasoline in it one day. shoot our water barrels with guns, they stab them with screwdrivers and knives, they empty the water, they smash the spigots. There's one particular water station where one of these vigilantes vandalized the water and a migrant died about a hundred yards from the station. It's not for me to judge whether they're breaking the law, I just want to help human beings in need. Every year, there are about 150 bodies that are found in the Tucson sector. And that's just a small fraction of the people that have actually died because it only takes a week to 10 days for predators to strip a body clean to a skeleton and then the bones are scattered. These people are human beings. It isn't right that they should die and it's a terrible death a death by dehydration and exposure. The biggest thing that the world lacks is compassion. I would like people to understand that these are really us. We're all migrants. We need to be compassionate, helpful, and kind to these people and treat them the way we would want to be treated and the people that came before us and our families were treated. Anything that we can do to help them on their journey and not die in the desert, that's the main goal. We're not heroes. We're just driving trucks in the desert and supplying water. It can be done. 50 gallons of water of our water was used this week on this water run, and so that's probably 25 people used our water. You know, that's a fair amount. I feel like it's you know, we could have saved some lives.
This episode was hosted by Sarah Toms and Josh Long with special guest Michael Burke. It was produced and edited by Josh Long. Grotto Network is senior producer Javi Zubi Zaretta and senior editor Josh Nome. Liz Collarin is the assignment desk and event program manager. Michaela Douglas, web content strategist. Becky Ottman, graphic designer. Adrian Garalde is our social media manager. Josh Long, producer. Ben Cruz, associate producer. Tara Kelly and Aaron Williams are our treasured video interns. I remember when I first was talking to Mike about doing this story, wanting to capture the experience of migrants in the desert and thinking of what it would be to to cross a desert. I mean, temperatures that soar above 100 in the summer, in the day, and quickly dip below freezing at night and dying of thirst. And I thought of what our faith tradition tells us of people crossing the desert in search of freedom. The reason why I'm so proud of this work and proud of the work that we do at Grotto in general is that it's an opportunity to showcase there are people still in the desert, still in Exodus, still in need of water. So check it out. It's on our YouTube page, on our website, at Grotto Network, and uh, it's worth your time. Also, I should say that uh, when I was in college, Mike Burke cast me in a student film of his called Clutch, where I had to play an action star, and I got into a knife fight. Thankfully, you can't find that on our website, but take care.